This is episode 234 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Engineered Tissue Assembly with Dr. Bo Yang Zhang. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us, please, and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Speaking of guests, today we have Dr. Bo Yang Zhang from McMaster University. He's on the podcast to talk about his research developing advanced biofabrication techniques to build human micro tissue models for predictive drug discovery and for tissue regeneration in patients. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, the ISSCR 2023 annual meeting is taking place in Boston from June 14th to 17th, and Dalen and I, along with the Stem Cell Podcast team, are super excited to be attending. Abstract submission is open through February 8th, and early registration closes March 8th. We hope to see you there. All right, Arun, I'm starting the roundup today with a story that's actually a callback from the ISSCR presented by Yuchuan Miao from the uh, lab of Olivier Porquier. This is one of the highlights for ISSCR for me, and I was really excited to see that this came out in nature just a couple of days ago as of recording, um, but it was really just a vivid illustration of the power of these in vitro stem cell models to inform human development. Uh, and this is a story about stomites, uh, which form from the pre-Semitic mesoderm and define the pattern on which the vertebrae are uh, aligned. Um, and the stomites are repeatedly arrayed in uh, two bilaterally symmetric columns, which give rise to skeletal muscles and the axial skeleton. And they form rhythmically as epithelial blocks surrounding this mesenchymal core. And it, it involves this rhythmic periodicity um, with a molecular oscillator called the segmentation clock. And we've talked about the actual Semitic segmentation clock before on the show with Miki Ebisuya. Um, and she was actually uh, a part of a, that study with Kantas Alev, who also uh, published a story without Miki Ebisuya in this case, but side by side published with this story uh, with a very similar focus on semitogenesis using similar approaches. This was side by side in nature in the most recent issue. I'm focusing on this story from Olivier Porquier because again, it's a callback to that ISSCR talk that I enjoyed so much. Anyway, the uh, this uh, periodicity and this oscillating segmentation clock, it is controls the, the activation in this rhythmic way of notch Wnt and FGF pathways in these traveling waves uh, of target uh, gene expression in the pre-Semitic mesoderm. And these periodic signals are interpreted at this wave front, it's called, that's defined by gradients of FGF and Wnt signaling. Okay, so this segmentation clock and wave front mechanism ultimately leads to activation of this cardinal transcription factor, MESP2, uh, in a single stripe, which uh, is predestines that future pre-Semitic uh, or that Semitic segment. Um, so what MESP2 does is involved in the subdivision of the forming uh, somites into the anterior and posterior 
compartments. And this is really a critical uh, aspect of somatogenesis for peripheral nervous system, uh, system segmentation, also for vertebrae formation. But the mechanism that controls the formation of this anterior and, and posterior somatic domains is not well, well understood. Um, what we do know, we know from uh, model organisms, mouse, chicken, zebrafish, uh, but of course, in the case of human somatogenesis, which takes place uh, between weeks three and four post-fertilization in the human embryo, as you can imagine, that's a black box, right? Well, it used to be a black box into the advent of synthetic embryos. Maybe we can crack that. But whether the mechanisms as of now, uh, until we get into those synthetic embryos, the mechanisms involved in, in somatic uh, formation and patterning that we've described in embryos from other vertebrate uh, model organisms, the, the question of whether or not they're conserved in humans remains unknown. All right, so that was the backdrop for this story from uh, the Porquier lab. Um, and I talked about it in ISSCR. This, this story is really brilliant in terms of the, the, the videos and the visualization of this this these different facets of somatogenesis. And what they did is they in, in, introduced this, created this three-dimensional culture system using, um, based on pluripotent cells that they called uh, somitoids or segmentoids, not or, and. They're two separate um, uh, ways in which they recapitulated the formation of somite-like structures with uh, distinct anterior and, and posterior identity. Um, and what they showed using this vivid, uh, in vitro uh, growth uh, platform, as they show that, that the initial salt and pepper expression of MESP1 in a newly formed segment is ultimately resolves into these compartments of anterior and posterior identity via active cell sorting. And maybe this is a callback, or maybe we'll, we'll come back to this with uh, your story. I know you got a story on these synthetic adherence. So I feel like that's the mechanism here, this active sorting mechanism, my cells finding each other and forming these, these um, regions and compartments. And that was beautifully displayed in the talk. And you'll see it again in the videos associated with this in the supplement. Um, but uh, the modules that are involved in maturation and, and patterning of somatogenesis, these clock and wavefront module, the anterior-posterior polarity patterning module, and then the epithelialization, epithelialization, I didn't say that right, but I'm going to move on, of somites, that these three modules all operate independently in this in, 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 in vitro reconstruction. Um, and that, to me, was, was really one of the major, I think, what resonated with me in terms of mechanism and insight is that there's these things that go on in concert in the body, and they seem to happen with perfect coordination elegantly. But here, uh, the investigators have shown that these three modules can be kind of deconstructed um, and separated in vitro, which raises the question of, you know, are they all being mediated by distinct mechanisms involving those cardinal pathways, you know, the notch, Wnt, and FGF, and other questions like that. But fundamentally, I, I just love this story as a way of really visualizing a, a fundamental process in human development um, in vitro. And I think it's really uh, presages a lot of the studies we're going to be talking about in the next few years. If we can stay on the show, you listeners keep tuning in because this is going to be it. We're going to be looking at all these things that have been a black, bo black box. And we're going to be able to not only visualize them in vitro, but also deconstruct um, and, and, and 
you know, break down each individual module here. So I don't know, Rune, this was just a feast for the eyes and also for the, for the mind. Uh, what was your take on it? Yeah, I agree. And I can see you kind of salivating about the, these early developmental models. This is really in your, in your wheelhouse. I can see the spit just flying on the screen over there. <laughs> Sorry about the graphics right there, but yes, I mean, I agree with you. I think this is phenomenal and this is just another piece of data, another landmark study, and really just a, a slew of early developmental models that have emerged in the last couple of years. Of course, we've talked about the synthetic embryos ad nauseum here on the show, but also the gastroloids, blastoids, all these different early developmental models that are just so critical in helping us understand her early human development. I think that's the other part of this is, you know, we can actually use human iPSCs and human pluripotent stem cells to dissect some of these fundamental mechanisms, something that we haven't been able to, to do in, in the past. And, you know, I think the other cool part of this is in the Cantus Olive paper in particular, the, the last part of the paper was actually applying this for a disease model. So they actually used their axioloids to study the pathogenesis of a, some human congenital spine diseases. Okay, So it's not just a pure developmental study. There is, there is some application here. They looked at these patient iPSCs with mutations in HES7 and MESP2. Um, so yeah, I mean, you can use this for not just pure developmental biology, but also for studying congenital diseases as well. So a tremendous model. And I think for me, the next step is how readily utilizable, how translatable, and how how quickly these models can be used by different labs, such as you know my own lab or other labs who are hoping to do some of these early de developmental studies. So I think the sky's really the limit for this kind of stuff. Agree. Limited only by the imagination of the investigators. And I think that's this this story is a great illustration of that, as well as the, the Cantus Olive story. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, a great demonstration of how you could parlay this into modeling actual uh, things with uh, clinical uh, relevance. And I don't know, I, I just want to reflect on when I was coming up in the early days, about a million years ago with uh, pluripotent stem cells, the goal was really just to visualize the emergence of a cell type in a you know motley context it didn't matter if you could identify that cell and you could trace it and try and understand basic elements of development on a cell level but here we are and we're, we're recapitulating processes and beyond so it, it's a very exciting turn and and as you you and i both said uh the limited only by the imagination of all the investigators that are going to make use of these tools what a time to be alive in stem cell biology. I mean, you grew up in the dark ages, right? So that this is a, I think there's a little bit, you know, we need those fundamental studies and those fundamental understandings of the, the folks in the dark ages. But now we have all these cool new technologies that we can use to our benefit, including these synthetic embryos. All this these is different interesting, models are interesting reference of the dark ages. It was like not even a decade ago, but here I am about to die. Arun, move on with your roundup story for God's sakes while I suffer here on a ventilator. Oh man, I'm about to get uh, I'm get shut down here on the show. But you know, hey, okay, I moving on. Anyways, moving on. Not not being ageist or anything here, but uh, yes, things have evolved over time, Dalon. They they certainly have. Uh, moving on to another study from an icon in stem cell biology, an icon in regeneration, who, uh, you know, has been around for even a little bit longer than you, Dalon. So don't worry. You know, again scientists can be of all ages all backgrounds not being not being anything here so yes absolutely uh this is from ken poss a mentor of mine from the one and only duke university go blue devils go duke, uh, go duke. this is a cell stem cell paper 
uh, utilizing the zebrafish, of course. The POS lab loves zebrafish, and they were the first back in the day in the Dark Ages to describe regeneration of the cardiac system and the heart. Uh, I guess that's another name for the cardiac system, right? Uh, the regeneration of the heart in the zebrafish, how you can basically cut off a huge portion of the ventricle and the zebrafish heart is going to grow right back after a few days, a um, few weeks, if the, the fish doesn't die from blood loss, that is. And what they're doing here, I think, is really the culmination of many decades of, of work in their lab from studying those fundamental mechanisms of how regeneration actually happens in zebrafish and ultimately applying it, applying those mechanisms of the zebrafish towards mammalian systems. I think we had we had Dr. Poss on the show a while back, and this is something we talked about, right? It's just, you know, yes, these certain model systems like the zebrafish have these amazing regenerative capabilities, but how do you actually harness these things so that it's not just a, oh, it's an observation in a fish that can't be used for any sort of application in humans. And I think that's exactly what they're doing here. So this is a an enhancer-based gene therapy strategy for spatiotemporal control of cargoes during tissue repair. And what they did here is they basically identified some enhancer elements. They're called tissue regeneration enhancer elements or trees that they isolated from zebrafish to direct targeted injury-associated gene expression in viral DNA vectors that were actually delivered systemically in mammalian species. So basically, in other words, they took a gene element from the zebrafish that's known to be targeting regeneration in the fish, and then they basically used AAV to deliver that element to mammals. And they did not only in, in a mouse model, but also in a pig model, um, in particular, a, a tree-associated cardiac element to actually deliver cardiac-specific gene expression to both the, the mouse heart and to pig, pig tissues as well. So they employed this in combination with the CRISPR-based epigenome editing tool in, 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 in mice, um, and the zebrafish trees actually stimulated or repressed the expression of certain endogenous genes after inducing a heart attack, a myocardial infarction in, in the mice. And then they combined the, the trees, those you know tr uh, tissue regeneration enhancer elements, with a, an AAV vector, like I mentioned, to direct a constitutively active YAP. Uh, you know, YAP protein is one of those master regulators of cell proliferation uh, to the heart. And they're actually able to directly target the regeneration and proliferation of cardiomyocytes after cardiac injury using these tree elements in these AAV vectors. So, and and then they did some functional analyses afterwards to to show that indeed there is some example and some sign of functional cardiac repair in the mice after delivering these these tree elements via via AAV. So, I think it's it's a really neat strategy. I think it's got a lot of. Uh, I think this is the dream, right? This is the dream. You can harness zebrafish biology, something that's evolutionarily so very distant from mammals, maybe not too di different depends on what you're looking at in terms of uh, what you're comparing it to but still hundreds of millions of years of divergent evolution between zebrafish and and humans and mice what they're looking at here but still you can harness some of these enhancer elements these trees um, put them into mice and you can still target regeneration repair in a mammalian system i think it's mind-blowing from an evolutionary biology perspective i think um the, bringing this into the humans is obviously the next step, and that's going to be way, way harder, as we know. 
But I think conceptually, just as a proof of concept, I think this is super, super cool. Yeah, I, I love it. I love a biohack, and this this definitely qualifies. <clears throat> I'm I may be oversimplifying. I don't I don't know that I understand the uh, technology or the principle as well as I should. But I have to ask. You know, the temptation I guess is to think of oh, fish as you know they they are able to regenerate their heart. Here we'll take their capacity for regeneration and we'll bestow it on these mam mammalian uh, models. Um, but I wonder, because, you know, there's a reason why, of course, in terms of the, I don't know what you want to call it. There's a reason why over the course of those hundred million years of evolution that these m mammals have lost the capacity for heart regeneration. And I wonder, not just yap. I mean, you talk in the past about how yap all over the body may not be a good thing. And that's, what's great about this, right? Is that it's really tissue specific and, and spatiotemporally, um, uh, confined, but, I wonder if endowing the zebrafish uh, mechanism of heart renewal regeneration on a mammal like does that work? I know they show some of the some of the data in the mouse, and that's the whole point of the paper. But I just wonder, like, aren't there kind of fundamental difference in the size of the tissue, in the blood pressure, and there's all of these elements that are so different, not just in the zebrafish heart, but in in the zebrafish circulation and the scale of the organism that make me wonder if an approach like this maybe a little bit kind of, I don't want to say wishful thinking, but it may be a half measure. And, and there may be other elements to, to mammalian cardiac regeneration that are going to be difficult to, to recapitulate from the, the zebrafish system. But again, I, I just don't understand the system well enough to, to really uh, level that criticism. It's more of a question at this point. Yeah, it's a fair question. And I think it's, um, I guess we, we should talk a little bit about the system itself. It's not the tree, the the element itself, that's totally driving the regenerative process, right? It's the tree that's directing YAP, which is, a, as we know, a hyper-proliferative inducing protein. Uh, that's actually doing the work here. But, you know, I, I think it's a valid question. And maybe just physiologically, it's just not possible for humans to have some sort of natural endogenous uh, regenerative capacity of the heart, no matter what you do. It's like you said, there's other systemic factors in the, the zebrafish blood and all these different things that are contributing to the, the rapid, rapid repair. There's a reason these things were lost evolutionarily over time in these hundreds of years, hundreds of millions of years of uh, divergent evolution. But then, you know, one other thing to actually mention here in the, the end of the paper in their, their conclusion section is that maybe maybe humans, maybe mammals have these elements in our systems already. And we don't necessarily have to harness zebrafish tree enhancer elements, regenerative elements. Maybe they exist somewhere buried in our genome and we just haven't unlocked them yet. And I think that's actually really exciting because there's so much we don't know about the 99% of the genome that's non-coding, right? So maybe, who knows, we just have to turn the, you know, find that element and uh, and turn the key, so to speak. Agree. And I should say here, if the endogenous repair mechanism, you know, isn't in place or able to, to be reactivated, you know, what's the alternative here? Talking about exogenous cells and stem cells. So like that has plenty of challenges too. So I'm not poo-pooing the idea. I really think that uh, mobilizing uh, endogenous stem cells is uh, underappreciated as a potential means of delivering a therapeutic benefit. So I'm really excited about the tech. I'm just so curious 
about that that distance you know the delta between these animals that can the oxalotl and the and the zebrafish and so on and and you know mammals like us who are just struggling but uh lo and behold what else are we going to do right we got to come with every tool in the kit um if we're going to get there and uh can pause keep on going very impressed with your work got to get back to duke and have a chat with you as soon as possible if you're listening please have us over uh, moving on, we talk about the dark ages, Arun. You give me a hard time. I've got one foot in the grave. I'm not that old. Born in 1978, uh, <laughs> which was also a, a red letter year for IVF. You know, so I'm feeling it. The first baby born by IVF, Louise Brown, is my age, and this was a story that not for me, but for I think a lot of people who uh, have either had kids or are we're a product of assisted reproductive technologies. This is something that will really resonate and not in a good way. Okay. So as I said, the, the first baby was born in the UK in 1978 by IVF, but here are the stats. More than 8 million kids have been born uh, or conceived at least by ART since ART, assisted reproductive technologies, two to 6%. That's a wide range, but even 2% of births in Europe are uh, from ART, um, approaching 2% of births in China, similar numbers in the US. This was a Chinese study, so they didn't, they didn't share our statistics, but it's around there. Um, and there's been some studies that have, have shown that kids conceived by art have a unique or distinct at least growth pattern in early life. And um, so, some studies have linked this uh, growth pattern to diseases uh, during older age. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of studies that speculate, uh, ICSI, you know, intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Is that bad? You're taking sperm that normally wouldn't find the egg. There's been a whole leagues of studies that have considered the possibility of ART and associated methods having a long-term influence on the child. But it's difficult to evaluate, right? The oldest IVF baby's 44. She's fertile. She has kids of her own. But how can we talk about diseases of el the elderly with a, a cohort of people who haven't even or barely have reached middle age, right? So it's tough. But um, when you talk about age, telomere shortening, that's a nice surrogate and a hallmark for aging in long-lived animals. And shorter telomere length, has been linked to age-related diseases like cardiometabolic diseases and cancer, okay? And in the main method that people use for looking at telomere length is looking at leukocytes, so the nucleated uh, circulating blood cells that you can obtain from a patient. So in this study, they looked at leukocyte telomere length, all right? This was a study from Zibing Hu uh, from Nanjing in China, and they had access to this really, you know, broad and, and complete uh, birth registry across China. What they did here is they compared 202 kids conceived by ART to 205 uh, children conceived spontaneously within these two centers in the China National Birth Cohort. They compared them by whole genome sequencing, and they showed here alarmingly that kids conceived by ART had shorter uh, leukocyte telomere length than those conceived spontaneously p-values that were significant with all the adjustments uh, and controls. Uh, and then they showed really in particular to higher degrees of significance, embryos that were transferred at blastocyst stage uh, were particularly associated with the shorter leukocyte tel telomere length. 
Then they validated this in 586 kids from other centers. So uh, using other methods, including whole genome sequencing again, but, you know, initially went with these 400 odd kids and then validated with another 600 kids. So that was very compelling. Um, and then looked in mice. And this was, I think, really the linchpin uh, that that underscored the, the the validity of these results. They showed that blastocyst stage embryo transfer resulted in shorter telomere lengths in mice um, at both day one postnatal, also at six months. Um, and then they showed that it, it if you cultured embryos, which you always do, but if you culture them to late cleavage stage um, versus blastomere stage, uh, it was mitigated. So it looked like that window between cleavage stage and blastocyst stage was really the time when we were getting the diminished um, telomere length. And uh, that makes sense, right? Because in terms of telomere reset, it's when you get fertilization of the embryo. And during that, you know, zygote to implantation is where you get the massive telomerase activity and the resetting of the telomere length. So that that kind of makes sense that it is that window post cleavage stage, but pre blastocyst when you're getting this function. So I, I don't know, for me, as someone who's really involved in uh, assisted reproduction uh, professionally, and as someone who was born in the same year as the first IVF baby, I think that this is a real bombshell result and is going to force uh, revisiting not just of, of IVF and assisted reproductive technology, but I think it forces us to reflect on all of these technologies that we're pushing forward nowadays in pursuit of cures and, and, and with the best intentions, of course. But here we are 40 plus years later, and we're just being clued into this potentially devastating influence that could affect millions of people globally. And it's a germline thing. So it's a whole slew of questions that, that are brought to the fore here. I don't want to make it like a panic alarmist type thing. I think a lot of work needs to be done to connect, you know, short telomere length at one year old in these neonates to the onset of disease late in life. But again, is that going to take 60 years? A lot of questions. How are we going to even ask them, Arun? Yeah, this is um, this is an interesting paper, and I think what you're saying is very true. This is an example of a medical technique in IVF and ART, which has been around for a long time. You know, you know, forty years or so, and this is something that millions and millions of people around the world are experiencing. You know, available across many different countries, and we may not know. We may not know the ultimate downstream phenotype, and for another few decades, which is scary perhaps, um, depending on your perspective. Um, but it also makes me think about other medical procedures that have been become commonplace. You know, I, I'm actually somebody who got LASIK not too long ago. Mm. And LASIK, laser eye surgery, is is something that's commonplace now. And millions of people around the, the world have been getting it. But it's only been around for, for two decades. And the long-term implications of that haven't been established, right? Because it's only been around for two decades. What happens when people are 70 years old or 75 years old? And is there like a, a detrimental function impact on your eyesight because you got LASIK when you're 25? I don't know. We will find out. So yeah, I, I get the the interest and the potential alarm. Um, but as somebody involved in this area, uh, I just want to put you on the spot on a scale from one to 10, how scared are you and how, 
how how strong are those alarm bells going off? Uh, that's tough. I mean, I, I would say I'm not I'm not I would not say this is cause for alarm. Um, I would not say that we as a field should move to day three transfer rather than letting embryos progress to blastocyst. Uh, I would argue that the we really need to get into the, the the fine measures here. You know, they show a significant shortening of telomere length, but significant, significantly different and having significance that's related to the age of disease are two very separate things. Um, and I think that that needs to be carefully considered. And also fundamentally, the, the cause and effect there with telomere length, although there's a very strong case to be made for a cell gets shorter telomeres and then things go awry, um, I think the case that significantly, uh, although maybe not grossly, but significantly shorter telomeres at neonatal age one, whether or not that correlates with disease, I think really really remains to be seen. And that's easy for me to say here because that's an experiment, a longitudinal experiment that will take decades. But I think that if, well, I'll put it this way, ICSI, which I think is a much less natural um, approach where you're selecting a sperm that otherwise wouldn't be able to swim up. Uh, I think that that to me intuitively is like, whoa, but a lot of studies, at least in the short term, you know, looking at a, a few years at best uh, postnatally, have shown that there's no real appreciable differences in the growth trajectory uh, or development of these kids. Um, although there's some studies that dispute that, I think the net evidence for me says that we shouldn't necessarily change the whole process here. And let's be honest, the horse is out of the barn. The idea that what people are going to just stop having babies by ART seems ludicrous to me. Yeah, I agree with you that. I think that's the the bigger issue is that, like you said, the 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 horse is out of the barn, Pandora's box is open. Whatever analogy you want to make, you know, this is something that millions of people around the world are experiencing. In addition to LASIK, LASIK's a cosmetic procedure, of course, it's not as critical as ART for sure. But again, a a procedure that we won't know the long term implications for for decades to come. So how about this? We revisit this on the Stem Cell Podcast in twenty five years. <laughs> Sound good? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Next up, we'll uh, wrap things up with the final roundup paper. It's a, a Nature paper coming from the lab of Wendell Lim at UCSF, and also on the paper are some friends of the show, Wes McKeithen, whose uh, papers we've actually covered on, on the cardiac side of things. He's actually transitioned into more of a synthetic bio uh, area of study. And also Ophir Klein, who's actually moved from UCSF to Cedars-Sinai in my neck of the woods not too long ago. This is a, because it's a paper coming from the Lim Lab, um, this is going to be a synthetic bio paper. And I think perhaps a a nod to our, our guest here on the show today, who's also involved in some engineering-based approaches, not necessarily synthetic bio, but in the, in the area, in the realm. So synthetic bio is really one of those cutting edge areas of study where you can create custom cells, custom organisms, potentially using entirely synthetic um, approaches for molecule assembly and protein assembly. And that's kind of what they're what they're doing here. Programming multicellular assembly with synthetic cell adhesion molecules. That's uh, the name of the, the paper here, the title of the paper here. First author is Adam Stevens, again, from, from UCSF. 
So we're talking about cell adhesion molecules, which are critical, as we know, across the board for everything, ranging from, as we talked about, developmental studies to differentiation approaches, such a critical set of molecules for regulating stem cell function, right? And they you know, specify, of course, precise cell-cell interactions and processes, uh, a bunch of different processes, right? And what they're showing here is that a, a array of synthetic cell adhesion molecules, or SYNCAMs, what they call them, can be generated by combining uh, different orthogonal extracellular interactions with intercellular domains from native cell adhesion molecules, such as some of the famous ones, cadherins and integrins, okay? And then after creating these SYNCAMs, the, uh, the resulting molecules actually created customized cell-cell interactions with adhesion properties that are actually pretty similar to native cell-cell interactions. So what they're actually doing here is with their synthetic molecules, creating custom, custom multicellular organisms, you could think of it in a way, or at least forcing the assembly of the the, the cells in, in a way that may uh, be analogous to what you can do endogenously and natively, which I think is really, really cool. So these SYNCAM intercellular domains actually identify um, uh, interface, they identify certain properties that allowed them to interface cell morphology and mechanics. So you can actually, based on how customized you make these intercellular, you know, cell cell adhesion molecules, you can specify how the cells are going to move, how they're actually going to self-assemble, and the the connectivity between the cells. So this is, I think, the analogy I think that I saw somewhere about this approach was custom glue. What they're showing here is a customized glue that you can use to glue cells together in a way that you want. And I think this is a, it's a building block towards the next step and making these things inevitably more and more complex. And it also is giving us some fundamental insights and in how these different classes of cell-cell interfaces might have evolved over time. Okay. So there's an evolutionary component too. But yeah, I think, you know, this is really in the wheelhouse of the Lim Lab. This is what they've been focusing on for many, many years. And it's just, it's just another example of the explosion in synthetic biology that's occurring right now. Um, custom cell, cell adhesion molecules, custom proteins, customized cells, ultimately are all things that could be intersected and intertwined to create the ultimate dream, which is, you know, customized organisms, customized multicellular organisms that can produce things and do things that may not be possible natively. And I think that's the the really exciting part of all this. Yeah, this is another, I mean, we started with the uh, exciting visual display and we're ending with one. This is the, the pictures in this story are so amazing um, in the videos. I encourage you guys to check out the supplement and you touched on something there uh, that I want to circle back to in terms of the use and application of this, like as a, as a, as a tool, it's so brilliant. It's such an elegant idea and, and the utility of it, I think remains, well, there's clear applications, but it's another one of those things where it's going to take a lot of imagination to fully, uh, you know, wear out all the, the variable applications that you could use this for. And it really was driven home for me. I don't know, because this advanced article preview with the figure number, I think it's 5B, where there's a schematic showing the, the different interactions in terms of like the, the strength of these SYNCAM interactions. If there's uh, no SYNCAM, you just have like a little uh, spheroid on top of a monolayer. If there's a little bit of interaction, you get that spheroid tethered. If there's a stronger interaction, you get it to spread. 
And then as even stronger interaction, you get the actual monolayer to kind of like grow up into the spheroid and create this lattice. So it's like, in terms of like tissue architecture and, and, and morphogenesis, I feel like this is going to be a, a, an amazing tool to, that takes us beyond like insight into the biological system and transcends that into like engineering to create like synthetic tissues, you know, of, of whatever shape you want and to, to create kind of, you know, little biological cell machines, so to speak, that are made up not necessarily of the native physiological or biological formation, but uh, machines that are made of cells that are organized in the way that we want them for their use, for whatever kind of biohack that we want to apply them for in, in, in cell-based therapy. So for me, this is another one of those, as you alluded to, one of those breakthrough type ideas where you have a, a single tool that's so elegant and, and straightforward, but it can be applied really across the board. Yeah, I think this is a, a tool set paper, right? Like I mentioned, this is the synthetic glue that you can use to actually create those custom multicellular approaches. I mean, one thing, and you alluded to figure five in the this particular paper, this makes me think of how you might be able to customize organoids or customize like tissue printed approaches, which, you know, you need those proper architectures for say vascularization. You have to, anything that you can think of that requires a proper organization of multiple cell types within a structure, maybe you can use these syncams to 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 mediate that, right? And so I think the really the the sky's the limit for so for the downstream applications that can come out of something like this. Yeah, for sure. And I mean that's the thing. I've always thought of it as so simple, binary. It's a cell adhesion molecule, like you know, a homophilic interaction, but here the the degree of interaction is really such a critical facet of this that makes it a big deal. So yeah, great story. And something that we ought to talk with about our guest or talk about with our guest, Boyang Zhang, who probably has some deep insight into all these systems. But before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce their one-stop resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments. Stem Cell's Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs. Learn more about organoid culture from the experts at Stem Cell. Visit www.stemcell.com slash discover dash organoids. All right, everybody. With us today, we have Dr. Boyang Zhang, who is Assistant Professor of Chemical Engineering at McMaster University. Dr. Zhang's lab is developing advanced biofabrication techniques integrated with insights from developmental biology to build human micro-tissue models for predictive drug discovery and to construct functional macro-tissues for tissue regeneration in patients. Boyang, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. The pleasure is ours. Uh, let me start off by just getting it out there. Chemical engineering, it's not exactly the traditional training set for stem cell biologists, but these days all bets are off regarding the pathways that best prepare one for the challenges facing the field. Why don't you start by giving us a brief introduction of how your lab leverages the principles of chemical engineering in your research? Um, sure. Um, 
So I know that chemical engineering, well, first of all, I'm not really a stem cell biologist. We do use stem cell, but I see myself more like a tissue engineer. Um, so my background training is in chemical engineering. Um, and I actually first got exposed to the field of microfluidic in my undergrad research. Um, so for people who are familiar with microfluidic system, these are uh, devices, contains microchannels. So it's very similar to a chemical plant, but a miniaturized version of a large chemical plant. So it's very much related to chemical engineering. Um, and then from there, I wanted to use these devices uh, for biological applications, right? And so naturally that got me into to learning more about biology and then, uh, and then further branching from there. I started to apply the fabrication technique that was used in microfluidic, but applying it to uh, to the fabrication of biomaterials to make bio scaffolds, and that got me into tissue engineering. Right? Um, uh, yeah. So that's kind of my, you know, how how did I uh, got from chemical engineering all the way to tissue engineering, and now my lab is using a lot more uh, stem cells, and that's because these are really great cell sources in order to build good functional tissues. Uh, we want to tap into these uh, advances from the stem cell biology field. Um, and ultimately, we want to build physiological tissues that could potentially be used for regenerative medicine and also for drug discovery. Yeah, I mean, these days, you don't necessarily have to be trained as a stem cell biologist to be called a stem cell biologist. So we're calling you a stem cell biologist, Dr. Zhang. Don't worry about it. But, you know, you've been involved in a lot of different exciting cutting-edge technologies, like what you're alluding to in microfluidic organ chip technology and, and tissue engineering approaches. And you've also actually been involved in some machine in, uh, machine learning approaches as well. You know, this has become a bit of a buzzword, machine learning, and almost every biomedical research field is starting to integrate machine learning and AI in some capacity with the work that's that's being done. And this is, of course, where you use these training data sets to predict various biomedical and biological phenomenon, ranging from cell motility, stem cell differentiation, organoid production. And your lab has actually used machine learning image analysis to automate the quantification of organoid morphologies for drug testing through actually a paper that just came out on lab on chip. So tell us a little bit more about this work and maybe a little bit about the importance of appropriate data sets for these machine learning approaches, because I think that's that's critically important, right? For sure, for sure. Um, I have this, this is actually a nice story. I, you know, as a PI, the good thing about it is... Uh, I don't have to learn everything. I actually, uh, you know, my students do all the work really. Um, so in this particular project, I actually know nothing about machine learning. I had an undergraduate student who started this entire project. She actually in the, uh, during the, her summer research, she actually learned about machine learning all on her own and then applied it to um, some of the work we do in our lab. Um, I, I just know, I understand the general principle of machine learning and the you know, potential application it could have on the work that we do. And, uh, um, but you know, the students are really the one who um, figure out all the details and make it work. Um, so the idea is, you know, we, we grow these colon organoids that derive from patients, uh, stem cells, colon resident stem cells, and we grow them in the lab. And when we grow these organoids, we just notice that they have all kinds of structural shapes. There's a lot of variation in the culture. Um, and we know that these 
structural changes from these organoids is uh, telling us something, right? That's an indicator of what the cells or what the tissue is, is doing. And uh, we wanted to be able to quantify that. And, uh, you know, there, there's, when we started this project, there was some work out there on the localization, identification of organoids, but there's, there isn't much work on looking at the subtle morph changes or variation in the morphology of these organoids. And so that's kind of what, what we wanted to do. Um, to, to train the machine, we had to generate lots of images. Um, so in our lab, we have access to a, a high throughput uh, um, image cytometer that allow us to uh, take uh, automatic take images of uh, 384 well plays. So we grow the cells in these well plays and then we collect just tons of these uh, images of organoids. And then we do have to manually label these organoids to classify them kind of manually to create that uh, initial data set. And then use that data set, we train the machine. And then after that, we can uh, um, provide the machine with uh, uh, with new images and, uh, and then we get automatic, get the right answer from it. Um, I, I totally agree that the training data set is uh, the most important piece. Um, you know, so far we have only used data set that's generated in our lab using the same machine. And so that's uh, sort of one way to keep the data set as consistent and uh, as reliable as, as we can. Yeah, yeah I, I've been amazed at all these machine learning approaches because I think they're really, they're making it possible to, to really address one of the greatest problems I've noted in, in the field, which is the infinite variety of shapes that these uh, cells can form in a kind of disordered system. And it makes you really appreciate what a miracle it is that you, you get any organism with a, with a, a reliable pattern that's formed almost kind of spontaneously during uh, uh, organismal development. Like it, it really is a miracle. Um, and a lot of that, uh, as I want to uh, underscore on this show, is due to the vasculature, right? The vasculature is necessary for getting to that scale of development and laying down the tracks. Um, and that's one of the major obstacles to modeling complex tissues in vitro today using stem cells. It's the limits of oxygen diffusion and the lack of perfused vasculature. And since, since you're postdoc, you've refined approaches for generating systems with built-in vasculature. Do you envision applying this system for actual perfusion uh, of blood or similar nutrient substance in like a larger scale tissue? Or is the role of vascular cells in those systems more for their like developmental instructive kind of paracrine effect, you know, the, the mm -hmm. cues that they give the cells around them? Are you really actually envisioning creating from scratch the plumbing uh for for this tissue can you can you just elaborate on your your goals there yeah that's a really good question so it, it depends on the application so if your goal is to create a large scale tissue that's for regenerative medicine tissue repair purposes then y'all you know in most cases the tissue needs to be large enough to support that repair work and therefore you need uh, vascular support for that. So in that case, the vasculature is there to, uh, you know, provide nutrient oxygen uh, to keep the tissue alive, right? Um, but if you are thinking about application for drug discovery, then the tissue are usually much smaller 
um, you actually don't need the vasculature to keep your tissue alive. We actually purposely make our tissue as small as possible in order to reduce um, um, media consumption and then use fewer cells as possible, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in that case, um, the presence of vasculature, its benefit is the, like you mentioned, the, uh, the paracrine signaling, uh, you know, cytokines are signal that the inositive cell secretes that impacts the surrounding parenchymal tissues. Mm -hmm. um, so it really depends on the specific application. Um, in my uh, PhD and postdoctoral work, I developed this uh, scaffold, which was fabricated using um, uh, the same technique that people use to fabricate microfluidic devices, but except this is on a biomaterial. The scaffold contains this built-in microchannel network that can be coated with a layer of endocellular cells to mimic the blood vessel. So in that project, uh, the goal was to create a you know, relatively large tissue and to use the blood vessel to support, to keep the tissue alive. Uh, mm -hmm. alive. Um, but in my um, current lab, uh, we are focusing more on drug discovery, building models for drug discovery. So most of the tissue that we're building now are fairly small. Um, they actually fit in the in a standard 384 well plate. Mm -hmm. So each well is fairly small. The tissue is fairly small. We do have a vasculature in there but is, uh, we use those vasculature to uh, deliver drugs and uh, to also perfuse immune cells and to focus more on understanding how, uh, you know, the delivery process of a drug or the, uh, how immune cells interact with blood vessel and then uh, impact the surrounding tissue. So, th so that's the focus there, yeah. Hmm. So you talked about microvasculature and like what you're alluding to, your lab is really heavily involved in these artificial vasculature approaches and microfluidic chip approaches as well. And I think, you know, the organ chip and microfluidic chip field has really taken off in the past decade with a number of commercial entities actually offering these organ chip and microfluidic chip devices, stuff that you can actually buy off the shelf. But I mean, as somebody myself who actually does a bit of organ on chip work, I think there's still some issues when it comes to scalability, reproducibility, and cost with a lot of these approaches. I mean, even though you can answer some pretty advanced biological questions, such as tissue perfusion and maturation with these organ on chip approaches. So how do you balance those issues of scalability and reproducibility with the advantages of these chips, such as perfusion and tissue maturation? Or is it really just a matter of picking and choosing your target application appropriately instead of using the the chip for everything. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you think about that? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. Um, um, so scalability is really, like in my opinion, is really important, um, which is why if you have, uh, if you look at some of the, our recent work, all of our platform is based on the format of 384 well plates. Um, so in these type of platform, well, it is a customized 384 well plate. So it's not just the standard well plates, um, but it's, it is in the format of uh, 384 well plate and we can grow like over a hundred tissues per plate. Um, so when we design this platform, we wanted to make the system, the culture system as scalable as possible. Um, compared to the more traditional microfluidic devices, you know, each chip is one tissue, so that's n equal to one. 
and you got you have to make multiple of these tissue if you really want to multiple multiple devices if you really have, want to scale it up um and uh, so we we i mean we person we we designed this in the 384 well play format so that you can uh, easily scale it up and uh, and this is also compatible with automated automation system. So in our lab, we recently got a robotic liquid handling system that allow us to do the gel casting and cell seeding uh, in a complete automated process. Um, and uh, we so it, it took a lot of uh, work to perfect this system to make them as robust as possible. Um, but we are hoping that. Down the road, you know, as we really dive into the biological experiment, these high throughput system would allow us to pump out a lot of data and results really, really fast because of the high throughput nature. In terms of the type of question we can address using these tissue models, um, I, I do believe that um, you, you know, you have to tailor the model to the specific biological questions. Uh, obviously, it's very difficult to design one model system that can address all questions um, so you do have to each model do have pros and cons and have certain advantages so you do have to tailor the model to the specific question um, in our lab we we're not focusing any specific biological questions we build a variety of tissue models so we do try to make the model system as generic as possible um, and we use them so far mostly for toxicity screening type of uh, questions Right. So you say you're not trying to tailor towards any specific uh, organ tissue. And, you know, I think generic is best wider applications. So I'm going to ask you this, you know, in terms of recent history, while we're talking about modeling everything, we got to talk about synthetic embryos. I mean, the whole paradigm of modeling development has been shaken up by the generation of these synthetic embryos. And, and while it's implicit that you need to aggregate these discrete cellular identities in order to make them happen. A critical key to success, I don't know if it gets enough attention, maybe it does, but I don't think it does, is, is the biomechanics, right? This roller culture element. In order to get these embryos to go through gastrulation, the roller culture was essential. And, and as, we, as we've talked about with Jacob Hanna previously on the show, he's been able to extend development through uh, organogenesis, right? So it looks like the biomechanical factor is real. Um, and for you, as someone who's focused on engineering material substrates for cell growth, you could argue with all your biofabrication, do you think progress with synthetic embryos will be enabled by a more advanced or sophisticated growth environment? You know, roller culture, it's pretty basic. I feel like there's a lot to come pretty soon about uh, generating a more complex substrate in, in which these synthetic embryos will be able to grow later or with higher fidelity. What, what's your take on that? Not necessarily that you're going to get into synthetic embryos, but how do you feel that field is going to progress and benefit from uh, a biofabrication? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I, I, you know, I, I'm not very familiar with the synthetic bio, uh, embryo field, but I do know that, um, you know, I think the as a community, we are starting to realize that the, the environment that we put the cells in is as important as the cells themselves. And so engineering that micro environment around the cells is the way to uh, further mature um, the cells 
and also provide them with additional functions. And that's an aspect that our lab is actively working on as well. Um, one example I can give you, this is on something that we're currently working on, is uh, we're able to use engineering technique to uh, create this uh, uh, alveolar chamber uh, structures inside the hydrogel that can be seeded with alveolar cells. And this is done inside of the, uh, our customized 384 well plate. Um, and you know, obviously we know that alveolar cells are, uh, experience this mechanical st stretch constantly, right, when we breathe. And uh, so what we did is we attached a customized lid onto the well plate. We connect the lid to a ventilator. This is a ventilator used uh, for uh, small animals when you perform surgery on small animals. And we were able to uh, perform this kind of mechanical actuation on these uh, engineered long alveolar chambers or on, on these engineered long alveolar sacs. And that's one way of uh, applying that mechanical stimulation on these microtissues in a fairly high throughput format in this customized 384 well play. Um, so we're still at the early stage of this project. Right now we demonstrated that we can engineer this kind of system. Now the next question is, uh, what, what is the benefit of this kind of mechanical stimulation on the tissue, how it impacts the gene expression or the maturation of these cells and these tissues. So we're, we're pretty excited of getting into that, uh, that work to really understand how the microenvironment impact the cells. Yeah, leave it to Daylon to ask the tissue engineer about, you know, synthetic embryos and developmental biology. So don't worry about it. I think that's, uh, you'll get into it eventually, as I, perhaps all of us will. But, you know, you mentioned these 384 well plates that you've been developing. And I think um, this is actually sort of integrated with a biotech company that you're spinning out from from your lab. And I think I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about that since I think it's a cool application and a cool technology. And I think a lot of academic folks in the stem cell field and the tissue engineering field have become more directly involved and integrated with commercial biotech, whether it's actually making the jump fully into positions, into industry, or spinning out companies from their own academic work. And then it seems like you're aligned with the idea since you have this startup company, Organobiotech, with this custom high-throughput screening plate that actually allows users to produce a variety of different complex preclinical models for you know high-throughput drug screening. So what was it like getting this company off the ground? And especially as an academic scientist like yourself, what was it like, you know, making this happen, especially during the pandemic when so much was uncertain in the biotech industry and how it's, you know, what it's also been like balancing this company with your, with your academic work. So tell us about, you know, organobiotech. Mm -hmm. We, we actually registered, officially registered this company during the pandemic. That was, I think that was uh, last year. Um, so we published a paper on this iFlow Play platform. I think that was 2020, maybe like almost two years ago. And then uh, after we published this paper, we wanted to commercialize this platform. Um, I always wanted to do that because I was involved in a startup company during my PhD with my supervisor. So I kind of had some experience uh, and, you know, have seen the entire commercialization process of spin, spinning off technologies from the lab. And so I know that's definitely something I wanted to do. And, uh, and there is also a lot of synergy between uh, you know, our research lab and a startup company um, because you, know, you do the research work and then on the startup side, 
you really it really forces you to think about how to make the platform more robust and more user friendly. So these are the key criteria we often don't think about in research, right? You get the you have a specific research question in the research lab, you address that and you move on. But you know, can you develop a product, a platform that's also easily usable uh, by other lab? And uh, I think that's uh, and also make it as reproducible as possible. Um, so that's a really these are really important questions that uh, our startup is focusing on addressing, uh, along with our research lab. Um, so I would say, you know, come coming back to building the company, um, the pandemic actually helped us because a lot of things moved to uh, online during the pandemic. For example, we actually met our investors online uh, through this app, a fairly new app called Clubhouse. Um, you know, people uh, who have shared interests like get into a group and talk about you know, different topics. And I joined this uh, Clubhouse uh, group that's uh, uh, for investors. And uh, and that's how I met our investors online. And we gave a pitch uh, through Zoom during the pandemic. And they really liked the project. Uh, the investor actually are from San Francisco. So we would never be able to meet them if, uh, if it was not because of a pandemic when everything moved to online. Um, and then and then you know they saw the potential in the technology and then they decided decided to uh, um, to invest in us with a pre-seed fund, and then we're officially registered last year. Um, now we are generating some sales. We're working with a number of uh, labs in the Ontario region as well as a couple labs in the U.S. And uh, so our collaborators, uh, these beta testers, are helping us to. Uh, uh, to further validate our work in their lab. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at right now. We're hoping to continue to expand. Uh, building on this technology, we'll have a couple more paper coming up uh, next year. And that we hope to show the expanded application of this platform. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, pretty cool a reflection of how a lot of these technologies are coming to market, not necessarily in the clinic, but um, in, in the furthering of clinical goals for sure. But you mentioned the COVID in kind of talking about the silver linings here. Um, and I, I agree, there was a lot of elements in communication where uh, the lines were flattened and, and we were able to, to communicate across greater distances with more collaboration. A lot of that will stick but I think it was a lot more negative than positive, if I'm being honest. And um, mostly with respect to just everybody's life and the economy, COVID totally blew it up. But um, another silver lining, I would say, uh, is that it provided a focal point for a, a huge proportion of the world's brightest scientific minds um, that were just trying to chase down the, the virus and figure it out. I mean, we modeled the hell out of COVID dissected the virulence of every variant, uh, looked at the influence on all the cells and organ systems that, that we could think of. But now we're in this endemic phase, right? And, and the interest of the scientific community has waned significantly, I would argue. Um, but you kind of were in, the, in your early, early career, soon after starting your lab, this hit. So this is a huge fixture in your kind of origin story. Um, do you think 
that, or first of all, did you pivot your research significantly to accommodate COVID? Do you think that the, a COVID pivot um, will, will leave a, a lasting impression on your lab's research track? For sure. Um, we, we actually got a, a pretty big grant uh, just last year. That's, uh, well, it's not really specific for COVID, but it's for building lung tissue models that could potentially be used for all kinds of lung to model all kinds of lung diseases as well as COVID. Um, and the reason, uh, the, I guess part of the reason we got that grant is also because of the COVID and there's a lot of interest in developing new technology that could be uh, used to uh, you know, prepare us for potentially future pandemic, if not the current one, right? And uh, so my hope is these funding would allow us to further develop our technology. And so we'll be more ready for, you know, future pandemics down the road. Um, in, in During this pandemic, I'll say that um, or, I mean, there are labs that have used the organ on chip devices to model COVID virus response, responses, also labs who have used organoids. Um, but these are, you know, there's a lot of work in this area. Um, but what I'm hoping is, you know, maybe by the time we get to the next one, um, these type of technology will become so mature, they will be the, the first two that we use, right, to, in order to, uh, to fight the pandemic. Hmm. Yeah, I think regardless, it's been pretty inspiring hearing how you've been able to adapt the work that you're doing during the pandemic, during a time where it's been a really devastating time, not only just for the greater world, but also for the research community in terms of labs shutting down and all these the the negative impacts of the the pandemic have been well described. But you have, you know, certainly been able to be very productive in terms of, you know, obtaining these grants and also pivoting your projects and also even starting this biotech company in the midst of the, the pandemic. So I think that's really great to see. And it's good to catch up with someone who's working on so many, so many cutting edge technologies in, in tissue engineering and intersecting so perfectly with stem cell biology. So thank you so much for joining us here on the show, Dr. Zhang. And before we actually let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of peripheral questions that we always like to ask our, our guests here on the show. So first off, if uh, what is one hobby that you've always wanted to pursue, but were never able to because you're busy doing everything? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I really like art. Um, I used to draw a lot and painting. I almost, I have to say, I almost went to art school uh, after high school, but uh, um, I, you know, I, I also realized I really like chemistry and that's how I got into chemical engineering. Um, but art is something that uh, I wish I have time to pick up on more. And uh, but it also helped with my research as well, right? Having um, you know designing figures, uh, these are the skills that comes really handy. Um, but it's a, it's something I enjoy doing. I remember doing a lot of it, and you, I never get tired of uh, painting and drawing. And uh, um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, and as we've talked about on the show before, there's plenty of art. In perfectly integrated with science these days anyways so and the the next question the final question if you were not a scientist what would you be and you're not allowed to say artist 
Yeah, I uh, I do have to say, I actually always wanted to, well, not always, I, I did wanted to study computer science. I took one course in computer science uh, in my undergrad, and I really enjoyed that course. Um, but I did my undergrad study that was uh, around 2006. And so that was right after the, the internet bubble. Um, and so computer science wasn't really a very hot major. And so I, I didn't get into that, um, but I, it's, it's something I actually really liked doing. Uh, and I felt like I was pretty good at it as well. Um, so that if, if I do have to go back and choose again, I might go with computer science. Yeah. Um, and, and another thing about uh, biological work is for everyone who do cell culture work is so time consuming, requires lots of equipment. So sometimes I do envy people who can you know, do their work with just one computer. Mm. Yeah, well, nowadays, all the bioinformatics, you kind of got to have a little bit of computer science in, in, in the toolkit. So uh, you might get to fulfill that dream uh, and dabble a little bit. But I, for one, am glad that you weren't lured by art, our computers, and have remained in chemical engineering and extended that knowledge and expertise and passion into the stem cell field, benefiting us all. Boyang, thank you so much for sharing some of the work that you've done and plan to do. Uh, it's really an inspiration. And I have vision, visions of, of a future of microfabrication and biofabrication being such an integral part of every day uh, and every experiment we do. So um, your, your work is much appreciated and much needed. Thanks again for uh, talking with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right, everybody, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. That does it for this year, 2022, coming to a close with a chill but uh, we'll be back in 2023 with a brand new show. Thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate you.